Father, I am thankful, Lord, that you've given me the privilege to teach and you've given this ministry the privilege to reach so many people over so many years. Uh, I thank you for the privilege, Father, that it is to pastor it in in places or to counsel at other times. Uh, I thank you for the blessing I have of men and women who have come alongside this work of ministry and have uh, become such an important part of it in many ways. And, of course, Father, I thank you that you have uh, chosen to take the meager efforts we give uh, that we put to work in this way and, and used it in such uh, amazing ways to reach so many people. For that is your purpose in your word. And so I'm, I'm honored, Father, and, and humbled to see you do that with, uh, with our effort. And, Lord, I pray that tonight we would uh, we'd be mindful of the fact that you have called men and women up into uh, positions of leadership in one form or another because uh, it honors you if uh, we live in a way that reflects you to the world. And that you call upon men and women to do that as a model for the church. And we ask, Father, that you would uh, remind us about the, the sober and, and significant role, uh, the sober and significant preparation that has to take place before someone can fulfill that role. So that if we were to be called into one, of, or, uh, one position of service or another, that we would have the right mind, right heart for it. We'd remember these things we learned tonight. And they would help influence how we think about serving the body. Or for someone who has a position of influence in selecting a person, Father, that we would take that uh, obligation very seriously. And we would apply these rules as you determined that they be applied. So that the best possible outcome would be a church that uh, follows men and women who reflect you and have a heart for what you want. And that inspires the church to follow you in better ways. Lord, that's what we want. So the word tonight, Father, is all about that. And we hope that you would give us the opportunity to take what we learned tonight and put it to work. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week we started examining the qualifications for overseers in the church in chapter 3. And we're going to come back to that list tonight. And if you're sitting there tonight thinking, well, I'm not going to be one of these people, and therefore none of this really matters to me, well, let me give you at least a couple of reasons why that's not true. First of all, in some cases, you may not be the person, but you may have a role to play in selecting the person. In many cases, there are congregations in which the congregation at large plays a role. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to be well-informed electorate. Maybe not the, the way God intended that overseers would be selected, but be that as it may, if you are in a position to advocate for someone in a position of authority or to recommend or vote or however your church does it, It's an obligation on those people to know these things. And for that reason, above all others, we should have an awareness of what God's expecting in our own judgment as we decide who should lead us. And then secondly, keep in mind that though these are lists of requirements for select few, for leaders, these are not lists that are limited to them. This is supposed to be what the best Christian looks like, not that these are the only people who look like this. So even if you're never going to be an elder or another form of overseer, you and I are no less obligated to seek after these same qualifications in ourselves. It just so happens that those who do the best at meeting them are the ones we're going to elevate. But we all have the same expectations. No one is, uh, for example, allowed to be imprudent. Nobody is permitted to be a lover of money. These are not things that some of us can have, but others shouldn't. It's a common set of expectations. So even if you're not looking at yourself as a potential leader, you should still say, well, if this is the model, if this represents the best amongst us, then this is my target. And so we ought to be thinking about these things from that point of view, too. So as we go back to the list, you remember last week I said an overseer 
is a general term for anyone who exercises authority over the congregation, no matter what their title is specifically, be it pastor, elder, it's anyone who has authority over the congregation as a whole. Whatever titles they go by, these are people who guard the flock, make decisions for the sake of the body, and therefore these qualifications must apply. We can't go wrong by applying these same standards to lesser leaders, but they are the minimum qualifications for those who lead over the entire congregation and overseer. And as I mentioned last week, these qualifications seem straightforward enough, most of them anyway, but applying them can be a messy affair when you're looking at the lives of individual people because no one except Christ himself could meet these qualifications perfectly. So when we go to apply them as we try to choose a leader, we're going to have to use a measure of grace and common sense in how we decide whether a particular individual is up to the qualification or not. In the end, what we want is to elevate people into leadership who exemplify the best within the body of Christ. So, in their examples, the whole congregation then can be inspired to imitate their standards of godliness. And so, if we, if we shortcut any of these and we put people into leadership who don't meet some of these standards, what we're saying to the rest of the body is, you don't have to meet them either. And that's a corrupting influence over time. The standards just get weaker and weaker over time. Now, in our study last week, we looked at the opening verses of chapter 3. We covered Paul's opening statement in verse 1. And then we looked at the first three requirements of the 16 that Paul gives in verses 2 through 7 for overseers. So, for context tonight, what I'd like to do is I'm just going to reread the entire passage. And we'll begin our discussion briefly reviewing the three we looked at last week. And then we'll dive into the rest from there. So let me just read from verse 1. So 1 Timothy 3, 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That's what we read last week. And as I mentioned last time, the first requirement Paul gives is implied more than stated, and that is that an overseer must be a man. And as we saw last week, the reason for that requirement was given back in chapter 2 as he looked at Adam and woman, and it comes to headship. The headship of the family and the headship of the church, spiritually, are both held by male authority. This is true for elders or for any other overseer who has authority over the entire body of Christ. So basically, if someone is in a position where they have authority over other men, then they are an overseer by definition. And as an overseer, they must also be a man. They must then meet these requirements. Secondly, we said last week that an overseer must be above reproach. And I explained that being above reproach meant giving no cause for accusations within the church concerning character or conduct. We want our leaders to be above any charges that might be levied against them that could distract the church or sully the name of Christ. I said last week that this requirement would include both present behavior as well as past behaviors, including perhaps behavior committed 
prior to coming to faith. But then I also said that as you go to apply that kind of a standard, we're going to have to judge those past behaviors with grace, knowing that no one possesses a perfect history or a perfect testimony, especially if you're looking at things that go on before faith. And then thirdly, we studied Paul's command that an overseer must be a man of one wife. We spent a little time on that, and I gave a variety of ways you could interpret those words. But I landed on the one in keeping with the spirit of the entire list, and that is that an overseer must practice moral, biblical marriage. Moral marriage means modeling the one flesh relationship that's given in Scripture. That means it would preclude polygamy, adultery, divorce, or fornication, all of which are contrary to biblical marriage. All right, with that, now we're ready to go past what we've already studied, and let's get into the new things for tonight. And we're going to hit everyone on this list. So the fourth requirement, an overseer must be temperate. Quite often tonight, we're going to look at the words in Greek because there are a lot of cases in this list in which the English word that I'm using, or perhaps the one that's on the page in your Bible, isn't necessarily the perfect one. There's a variety of meanings available. So we're going to look at the variety in some cases. Here, the word temperate in Greek means to be sober, to be measured, to be clear-headed, to be balanced. Just as we say, for example, that a climate could be temperate. And we say that to mean that it doesn't experience extremes in weather. Similarly, a temperate person remains in control and balanced in all things. You could summarize temperate to be slow to anger, or not prone to outbursts, not prone to rash behavior, not easily thrown off track, Or, for that matter, not easily manipulated, even keeled, as I said earlier. The word in Greek for temperate is nephileos, and it carries the suggestion of sobriety. The root word of that Greek word is nephos, which literally means to abstain from alcohol. But nephileos doesn't mean to abstain from alcohol. It's a derivative word. And it's unfortunate that the word temperance has become a euphemism for abstaining from alcohol because in the Greek it doesn't automatically mean that. Paul's actually going to address the issue of drinking more specifically in a moment. So we'll wait to talk about it more at that point. Just understand that the word temperate there is not speaking about alcohol. It's speaking about consistency in your approach to life, not being prone to wild swings of thought or behavior. Because, friends, the last thing we want for the body of Christ is that we would be led by men who are impulsive or emotionally charged in the way they approach their job. Because where they go, we go. We don't want them to be running like a chicken with their head cut off, right? Next, Paul says we want our overseers to be prudent. Prudence is the natural complement to temperance. A temperate person remains calm and in control no matter what comes against them. Prudence refers to being well-considered and measured in the way you respond. Temperance is how you react. Prudence is how you respond. The Greek word for prudent also means self-controlled. So you can clearly see a trend here in Paul's thinking. He wants the church to select men who aren't going to say or do impulsive things. Because, as I said, where the leaders go, that's where the body of Christ is going to go. And our leaders are supposed to create a climate within the church where you can grow and mature in a safe way, without condemnation, without worry that... Things are going to turn upside down from one day to the next. Unpredictable, rash leaders are not conducive to that kind of healthy environment. Have you ever been a part of a church where you had a hothead pastor or you had elders that were unpredictable? You already know what I'm talking about. It makes everyone nervous. Furthermore, Paul adds that a man must be respectable. And the Greek word that's translated respectable means orderly or proper. 
It describes someone with a sense of seriousness about their duty. They conduct themselves in a somewhat formal way, a dignified manner. Not stiff, not humorless, not Prince Charles, for example, but neither should they be silly, not John Cleese either. So taking these three together for a moment, temperate, prudent, respectable, and you begin to imagine a man of distinction, a man who's reserved, always in control, He has gravitas. He commands respect. Men don't come out of the womb this way. We all start as children. We all have to grow up. We all go through our teen years. So an overseer is a man who has outgrown the impulsive nature of his youth, has learned from his mistakes, and now as a result, he's obtained a degree of maturity and stability and prudence and temperance that the rest of us can respect. And now Paul moves from that trait these traits that are internal, to discussing traits that deal with how we address others. And the first of those is being hospitable. The word in Greek, philoxenos, it literally means love of strangers. It's the counterpart to Philadelphia, which is brotherly love, love for someone you are already related to, as opposed to love to a stranger. So when we hear hospitable in our culture, we usually think strictly in terms of opening up our homes to people. And that's certainly a part of this. That's an important aspect to this quality of being hospitable, but it doesn't stop there. We want leaders who have an openness for serving others and using everything they have at their disposal to provide that service to include people they don't even know, to be willing to do that even for strangers. And that's the full sense of the term. People, men in particular in this case, who have a desire to meet the needs of others, including those they have no relationship with. Because it's more than just being polite. That's essential to the mission of the church. And in fact, that would be following the model of Christ in how he moved around when he was on the earth. We want leaders who have open hearts, open houses, and open wallets for the needs of those they lead. That includes those they don't know. So our Great Commission would require, to some degree, a hospitable nature, if we're ever going to be successful at it, a willingness to extend kindness to the least of our society. Next, Paul says the overseer must be able to teach. And of course, Paul means implicitly teaching scripture, not just teaching in some general sense. And so a man who would be an overseer, an elder, a pastor, some role that leads the church, they have to be able to demonstrate that they can teach the Bible. They have to have an understanding of scripture sufficient to explain it and to defend against its error. Paul gives us that in Titus. Titus, you remember, has a similar list about overseers. And in that list, he has the same requirement. And he elaborates on it. In Titus 1.9 he says, Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teachings, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So Paul says an overseer has to hold fast to the true teaching of the word according to the apostles' teaching. So in our day that would mean the New Testament, the writings of the apostles. And so an overseer must possess an abiding and orthodox understanding of scripture as revealed in the New Testament, and of course including the Old. And then they must be able to use that understanding to exhort the people concerning what it says and to refute the false claims of those who would come against the Word of God. Now Paul includes this requirement smack dab in the middle of the list. So you you might be tempted to think it's just of average importance. It's just in there somewhere. But that isn't correct. Paul's instructions later in this letter to Timothy will make clear that the ability to teach is the highest trait of an overseer because guarding the flock from false teaching is paramount. 
That's the first order of business for an overseer. For the body of Christ is united and empowered by its understanding of the Word of God. So today, the average Christian in the world is biblically illiterate. They know almost nothing about what's in the Bible or what it means. If you run into the average Christian on Sunday, they know nothing about the Bible. No matter how much they think they're being taught the Bible, the truth is, what we think we mean when we say learn the Bible has become regurgitated pablum. If God had a better way to say what he wanted to say, he would have just written it that way. But what he wrote was what we have. So by definition, this is the absolute best way you could learn it. Any derivative of it is walking away from the best thing, not making it better. So he picked the best way, by definition, stick with that way, don't depend on the derivatives, and you'll actually get a lot more out of it. And I'm kind of on a soapbox for a moment, I'm sorry, but when you talk about an elder's responsibility, an overseer's responsibility, it isn't merely that they themselves have to be smart about the Bible or confident to speak on their feet. That's not what Paul's getting at. The point of the overseer is that what they have, they're bringing to the body. So that their ability to teach is not for their own sake. It's so that the body's informed by their ability and that they guard the teaching that's going on around them. So it says something about the church today that so many Christians are illiterate in the Bible. It says a lot about the leadership. And not just about what their own knowledge may be, but their own willingness to exercise their office appropriately such that the congregation learns the Bible. And it's a sad commentary. So the situation of biblical illiteracy today is the direct result of overseers who either do not understand the word or do not value it for themselves, much less for their congregations. They don't guard it or they don't teach it methodically. And Paul actually addresses this trend later in his second letter, which we're going to do here as a follow on, in which Paul talks explicitly about what would be the church in the later times and how teaching will have fallen away in those days. This soapbox will reappear at that point, when we get to Second Timothy. Meanwhile, his next requirement, an overseer not be addicted to wine, which, for our purposes, we can generalize that to any alcoholic beverage or any mind-altering substance. They all are addressing the same issue here. And the issue is not the alcohol itself, for even Jesus drank wine, as you know, and he promised his disciples that he would share a cup of wine with them in the kingdom when we all arrive there. And furthermore, Paul, writing later in the same letter under the leading of the Spirit, is going to prescribe medicinal wine for Timothy. So Paul's focus is not on the word wine. His focus is on the word addicted. Addiction is a loss of self-control over the desires of our flesh. Addiction is proof to us that our flesh has gained a victory over our spirit in an area of our life. All believers are engaged in a lifelong struggle against their own flesh and the sin that it produces. And Paul describes this very well in Romans 7, you may know. A couple of verses as an illustration. Romans 7:19. Paul says, For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I don't want, well, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. Speaking of his flesh. So our fight against our flesh is a battle between our perfect spirit, which is sinless. The spirit you receive when you're born again in Christ is a sinless spirit. It is in union with Christ's spirit. And everything Christ wants, it wants to do. But it is occupying a body that is 100% sinful. So though your spirit never sins, your flesh never fails to sin. So depending on which one is controlling you in a given moment will determine whether you sin or not. And that fight between the flesh in you that wants to do wrong and the spirit in you that wants to do right 
That fight is tough enough already without giving your flesh any extra advantage. And an alcohol or drug addiction is evidence that the flesh has gained a foothold and has a leg up on the spirit, at least for a time, and that means your spirit's in less control and less able to fight it. Obviously, we don't want leaders who are losing this battle. We want leaders who are under the Spirit's leading to the extent possible. And any serious addiction to alcohol or drugs has to be a disqualifying character trait because that person has not gained that strength they need themselves before they can be a strength to others in spiritual areas of life. And by the way, it does not matter if the drug is legal or illegal. Certainly, the willingness to use illegal drugs is disqualifying by itself because it demonstrates dishonest character. But even the use of legal drugs, an addiction of legal drugs would disqualify a man if they have control over him. And I would also add, some drugs are so powerful that they should be avoided even if they were legal, since the dangers of addiction are so high. That would be imprudent, and then you'd violate one of the earlier requirements. The lesson here, frankly, is know your limits and your weaknesses so that you can avoid a misstep that may carry significant consequences. Moving on, I'm going to take the next three items together. He says, don't be pugnacious, but gentle and peaceable. You could lump them all together as one requirement. One of these is the opposite of the other two. Pugnacious is pletes in Greek. Pletes literally means a striker, someone who hits people. So Paul's saying, don't be a striker. The word appears only here and in Paul's similar list in Titus, so it's not a common word. You could just as easily have translated the word to mean being violent or being prone to outbursts. I assume it's self-evident why you don't want leaders who are violent prone to hitting people. (laughs) Do you need more explanation than this? Men who are violent are literally the opposite of what you want. That's why Paul says, we want men who exhibit, and the next word would be gentleness. The Greek word for gentleness is also an interesting word. It can be used to describe someone who quietly suffers an offense. That's really the sense of it. It reminds me of the way of a, a larger, older dog will sit patiently while a young puppy grabs at its ears or bites its tail. That's the sense of the word in Greek. That's what Paul wants. And as a pastor, I can completely identify with this requirement. An overseer in the church or any leader, frankly, in any organization, walks around with a target on his back. And most of the time, the slings and the arrows that come our way are thrown by the very flock that we're trying to feed and guard and care for. And if an overseer doesn't have a thick skin and a willingness to suffer slights and insults from time to time, you're not going to survive very long in the job. That's why that person needs to be gentle in how they respond to the body that they lead. So when someone comes against an overseer harshly, that overseer needs to have an attitude where they assume positive intent from the other person rather than assuming negative intent. They have to be someone who doesn't take offense easily when maybe offense was made but not intended. Uh, You have to be prepared to respond with a kind word in situations where a lesser man would have issued a sharp rebuke. You can't worry about defending your pride or your ego because there are more important objectives at stake. Forbearing the offenses of others. Gentleness in that context then is directly the opposite of pugnacious, right? Pugnacious means I'm ready to fight at a drop of a hat. Gentleness says I'll put up with a lot. Finally, peaceable. The word in Greek is a bit humorous actually, especially for those of us who live in a Hispanic culture. The word in Greek is amakos. But if you read it the way it's spelled, you might say amachos. Some of you may know that when you put the letter A in front of a word, it turns the word into its opposite, not. A in front of a word means not. So it's not machos. And that's actually a pretty good definition of the word in Greek. It means to abstain from fighting or contentiousness. 
It's the attitude that's the opposite of being a bully. So here again, it makes perfect sense that our leaders shouldn't be men who are prone to bullying people in order to get their way. Their style of influence should not be based on intimidation or threats. So let's take all those together. Yet gentleness, not being violent or pugnacious, as he said. And you start to see the kind of leader Paul is describing. Like your grandfather, if you have the Rockwell grandfather. He's strong but silent. With a single word, you can know what he feels. And that kind of gravitas, as I said earlier, that you respect implicitly. As I was trying to imagine this person, a poem came to my mind, one that you all know very well. Rudyard Kipling's If. And I'm just going to read a part of it. See if this doesn't fit some of what Paul's describing. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, Yours is the earth and everything in it, and which is more, you'll be, and what's the way it goes? You'll be a man, my son. But I ended it, you'll be an overseer, (laughs) my son. So that's the point, these balancing qualities and characteristics, even keeled. Next requirement, this is one that I think many men would struggle to meet, especially in our world today. An overseer must be free from the love of money. Now, the Greek word translated love is actually the word for covet. So Paul's concern here is for a man who covets material wealth. He desires money and the things money can buy. Paul's concern is for the man's attitude toward wealth, not with wealth itself. So an overseer may be rich or an overseer may be poor. A rich man can have an unhealthy love of riches, but then again, so can a poor man. On the other hand, a rich man can be godly and generous with his riches, just as a poor man can find contentment in his poverty. So it's not about how much you have. The question is whether a potential overseer is preoccupied with obtaining and retaining wealth in such a way that it interferes with his ability to steward the church of God. For example, does he manipulate others or use his office to enrich himself? That would be evidence of love of money. That's the chief complaint in Scripture against the Pharisees. They were lovers of money, not lovers of God. Jesus himself said you can't serve God and money. At the same time, so it's a biblical principle that he's stating, the desire for one will inevitably lead a person away from the other. And I would add, by the way, the present wasteland of prosperity, gospel teachers, and the millions of people they've deceived is only more testimony to the truth of Jesus' words, right? They're definitely not serving God, they're serving money. So because both poor men and rich men are potentially lovers of money, how do we judge this quality in a prospective candidate? How do we know whether they're lovers of money or not? Can't look at their bank balance. That doesn't automatically tell you anything. Amassing wealth or possessing nice things doesn't mean the man's covetous, does it? It could, but it doesn't have to. And in fact, ironically, a healthy savings account or a nice car could be evidence that the man's careful with his money. And that's an admirable quality in a leader and sometimes the very thing a church needs. So you can't be too quick to judge on this issue. Like all the character traits we're looking at in this list, a man's attitude toward wealth is something you only get to understand by getting to know the person and seeing how they live. Because frankly, everyone has a desire for money to some degree. And even the people that tell you they don't, they're the ones you really got to worry about. But desire doesn't constitute covetousness. 
So this is what I look for in a prospective overseer. First of all, is he generous to others? Classic sign of a love of money is you don't give money to anybody else. Not unless you have to. Does he live a relatively modest lifestyle, one that's within his means? Does he manage his own money well enough that he's not a burden on others? Or he isn't always struggling to make ends meet? He's not always behind on his bills? He's not always trying to rob from Peter to pay Paul? Again, another irony, people who have a real love of money typically don't know how to handle it very well. They're typically always trying to spend more than they have. Those are just examples, but it's worth the time to spend with someone getting to know their heart on this issue because so many churches over the history of the church, so many congregations, have suffered grave damage from men who came in as overseers and were really only there for what it offered them and not for what they were there to do for the church. And that continues today, of course. All right, verses 4 and 5, Paul gives one of the more controversial qualifications for an overseer. He says an overseer must manage his own home well. Managing the home is a broad concept, and it includes many things, and it begins with the basic idea of men leading in the home. So the Bible teaches that men are the spiritual leaders in the family, as in the church. Therefore, before a man may be judged ready to lead in the church, he must already be leading in his home. If not, if he has not stepped up into that role at home, then he is not at all qualified to assume it for the church. Proper management in the home should look very much like proper management in the church. And a potential overseer then must demonstrate all the same qualities before their family that they're expected to have before the church. Paul says in verse 5 that an overseer's approach to leading in his home is a good indication of what he will do if given the opportunity to manage in the church, both for the better or for the worse. And that principle holds true, friends, because the situations an overseer faces in the church are very often exactly the same ones you face as a husband or as a father. I find this to be the case so often it's kind of funny. That's why I'm laughing at it. Churches need order and structure, just like families. Churches need budgets and priorities, just like families. Churches have disputes that have to be resolved without sacrificing relationships, just like families. Churches must... Take time to celebrate with one another. They have to talk with one another. They can't ignore one another. They have to be in fellowship on a regular basis. They have to discipline in love. They have to mourn without losing hope. The list just goes on and on and on. The kind of thing that makes for a strong church family are quite often the same good traits you're supposed to apply in holding a family together as a father and a husband. And so those same skills, those same sensibilities need to be present in both. Unfortunately, in some cases, you have men who have the sensibilities... They just don't practice them. They come home, they kick their shoes off, they watch ESPN, and they couldn't care less what happens in the home. That's exhibiting poor leadership. If you tell them they can be an overseer in the church, there's a burst of excitement about having the job and the title, and pretty soon they're kicking their shoes off and they're watching ESPN while someone else has to worry about the trouble in the church. You can't expect a tiger to change its stripes because you gave them a new job with a better title. Finally, Paul adds that this man must keep his children in control with all dignity. This is an element, a piece of this test of home leadership. And there are two parts to this requirement. One of them is really easy to see, and it's often the only one we ever notice. But there is a second one involved here that's often overlooked. You could translate Paul's phrase as maintaining obedient children without losing his dignity. So we want overseers who demonstrate they have the ability to maintain control over their children. And I'll tell you, that's an excellent test of fitness for the job of running the church. We know children are inherently undisciplined. They come out of the womb that way. They come out of the womb lacking self-control. Everyone is ADHD at birth. Therefore, self-control has to be learned. Everyone has to learn it. Yeah, some kids are worse. 
in terms of their behavior. But self-control is not something you're inherently born with. Unfortunately, not every child receives training in how to maintain self-control. So we want leaders who have both an appreciation for the value of self-control and they have a determination to see that training applied in the lives of those under their authority. They expect submission to authority and they train their children to have that same attitude of submission to authority. And I understand judging this qualification is highly subjective. For that matter, most of the list is highly subjective, right? So here again, grace needs to be a part of how we judge these things in other people's lives. And by the way, everyone has a different standard in their home. Some kids are not allowed to run and scream. Other people say that's acceptable within the home. We're going to have to be very careful about what we judge against others because our standards may be different. There's going to be a gray middle of what's allowable. And I should also add, every child makes bad choices and experiences rebellious moments from time to time. And in those worst moments, that's not necessarily exemplifying their training or their parents' attitude. It may just be the kids deciding they are going to try doing it a different way for a while. Then it becomes a question of how does the parent respond, right? Nonetheless, we don't look at a moment, a certain Sunday afternoon at church or something of that sort. We want to see a broader sample. But in general, the children of someone who's qualified to be an overseer should demonstrate love for their parents a heart of obedience, general respect for authority. They should respond appropriately when corrected, and they should show a sincere desire to do the right thing. And the parents should demonstrate a devoted, determined effort to create that in the heart of the child. Now, given the lax parenting standards in our culture today, and I hope I'm not shocking anyone when I say that, that parenting standards today are definitely different than they used to be, I think it's getting increasingly difficult to find men who will meet this standard. And as a result, I think we're applying the standard unevenly, if at all, in the way we move men into leadership. But having said that, I think it's getting even harder to apply the second part of Paul's requirement, which was that the man must maintain control over his children without losing his dignity. If he gains control through physical or verbal abuse, for example, that's not controlling your children in dignity. Or if the parent has to plead and bargain and negotiate and ask 20 times for the child to do the right thing, to get him to do what he was supposed to do the first time, then that parent has also lost their dignity in the course of an ineffective method of discipline. I hope you can see why such things would disqualify a leader over the church. Because if you have men in leadership who have to resort to abuse or negotiation to prove that a person ought to respect their authority... Well, then they have no authority. No one's going to respect them. If a father has to rely on inappropriate physical force or unnecessary negotiation to get the child to do what he should have done in the first place, the child will never respect that parent. A father's word should be sufficient to drive a child's behavior. Not when they're two. That's when you have to enforce it other ways so that they get to understand that obedience is necessary. But by the time they're seven, eight, ten, twelve... At that point, if there's been training, the child should respond to a parent's word with a yes or no, sir, with rare exceptions. My kids are not perfect, and I won't begin to say they are. And we weren't perfect parents. That's another given. But my wife and I had a shared sense, at least in this area of our marriage, about what was the appropriate thing that would happen in our family. And we had rules like we would tell you, and if you disagreed or didn't do it, we would punish you. And if you objected to the punishment, that was a new offense that warranted a new punishment. There was no emotion in it. It's just the way the process worked. And you know what? Kids are smart. They figure out it ain't worth rebelling because things just get worse. But the consistency had to be there. 
And not without grace, not without exceptions, but in a way that made clear to them that we weren't playing games with them. And we never negotiated. Well, actually, that's not true. From zero to seven, no negotiation. From seven to about 13, you could negotiate it based on good reasoning. From 13 and up, they made the decision we would veto. And that was a way of elevating their ability to make their own decisions based on the trust that they earned by their decision making. But we kept it at an appropriate level because there's an age at which you have the ability to make rational choices and there's ages when you don't. So when you teach a kid from zero to seven that they just do what they're told without questioning, when you get them into these later periods of life, you know what they start doing? Even when you say it's your decision, they'll say, well, Dad, what do you think? It's nice when your kids have enough interest in your opinion that they're willing to invite you in, but you can't force your way in. And I know I'm sounding like I've got the answers to how you raise kids. Trust me, there was plenty of days when if you'd asked me, I would have said, I have no idea what to do with that kid. It's not that simple. I realize, here's the insight I think you want to leave with. If the Bible says that it's a fair test of someone's right to lead, to look at their kids, then that implies that raising a godly kid is not chance. It's not just luck. It means that there is a controlling element from the parent that God has expected us to take advantage of and that the outcome is determinable to a degree and that we should look for that and we should find those within the body of Christ who are best at it. Now, the corollary, though, is that if you happen to have a child that's rebelled, especially later in life, it's not your fault. It's not like there's a one-to-one correlation in this process. It's too messy. There's too many variables. We are saying, though, that in general, barring exceptions a couple can set their mind to raise godly children and have a decent expectation of that outcome based on scripture's promise that if you raise a child in the way that he shall go he will not soon depart from it it doesn't say he will never depart from it it just says he will not soon depart from it that the odds are on your side so to speak that god will be blessing you in that respect and i take that as an encouragement as a parent not as condemnation for those exceptions but as encouragement to seek for the best thing you can with your child or grandchild and we want men in the church who've demonstrated they can do it so that they can apply that same kind of godly discipline, training, and guidance to the whole body. The final two requirements are found in verses 6 and 7. Paul says that the man may not be a new convert to the faith, and he has to possess a good reputation outside the church. Elevating a man into leadership too early can lead that man to follow in Satan's own footsteps, Paul says. And he's referring to Satan's fall. And Ezekiel 28 tells us that Satan's fall was a result of his pride because he had a very special position in guarding the mercy seat in the heavenly tabernacle. That put him as close to the glory of God as any other created being. And because he was so emboldened by his pride over his special position that he took the the fall of thinking he could be God. Paul is using that as an example of what could happen to someone who's elevated into a special position of leadership before they're spiritually mature enough to handle that opportunity. He doesn't give a specific length of time here, which I think is very important. You know, he could have said two years minimum, like a resume, two to five years. But he doesn't. I think that's because the qualification isn't a mathematical issue. It's a matter of the heart. There will be men spiritually mature, maybe faster than the average, and they're ready for eldership. On the other hand, you could have somebody who's been a Christian for 20, 30 years and did very little effort at pursuing sanctification, doesn't know the Bible very well. Well, their 30 years of being a Christian it means very little in terms of their ability to lead. So the issue is the heart of that person. Are they mature? And it's a logical thing to conclude that someone who's a recent convert has had very little time to mature. Even Paul himself spent several years in Arabia, he says, studying up for the position that God gave him. This is after he'd already become a Pharisee among Pharisees. So clearly some amount of time 
before you're ready is inevitable. So we don't want to elevate men into a position of honor and authority until they're wise and mature enough to handle it. You want someone who's pursued sanctification in his own walk. He's been walking with Christ long enough that he's gained the benefits of it. That would mean spiritual strength to resist temptation to think himself too important or conceited. So the issue is not one of physical age, but of spiritual maturity. Now, if you're in a situation in a church where the pickings are slim, there aren't many people in the church, there aren't many who've been a Christian very long. I've heard stories of cultures in remote locations where they just don't have a lot of seasoned converts. Then you pick the best one you've got. And usually you depend on outside authority to help coach and guide you in the meantime. And then lastly, he says an overseer must possess a good reputation outside the church. And you remember earlier, Paul said he had to have a person who was above reproach. And that meant that no one in the church body could bring a charge against that person. Paul wanted the church to be sensitive to any accusations that might be floating around concerning this man. And they should look into those accusations and see if there's any substance there before they elevate the man. But now he's concerned for the public accusations that could come against a person, regardless of whether they're true or not. He doesn't want an overseer to fall into reproach or disgrace, he says, or the snare of the devil. What he's speaking about here is either fact or fiction. It doesn't matter. If an overseer or potential overseer has a bad reputation in the public eye, then he either has real character issues, which is something you'd want to know about anyway, or, at the very least, it may be that these false accusations are going to follow him into the position and are going to create distraction for the church or lead him to feel pressure to cover them up in some way. It's not a healthy environment in any case. So we would pass over men who are controversial or notorious, whether justified or not. It may not be fair, especially if they've been falsely accused, but the mission of the church is more important than one man's opportunity to be an overseer. By the way, this requirement would argue against church leaders ever becoming prominent in politics or in societal movements apart from the gospel. Because we want leaders who remain largely and quietly focused on leading the flock and on reaching the world with Christ. So too much notoriety about ancillary issues is unhelpful because it just gives the enemy advantage and an opportunity to bring those church leaders into ruin or to bring accusation against them or just to put them in the limelight in a negative way from an unsympathetic press. You don't know how it's going to be turned. How many people have we seen this happen to? Men in, the, in ministry who have taken on a public role of some kind and decided they're going to put their name on the line for proposition whatever and it doesn't work out well for them or they get maligned in the press or their name gets dragged through the mud. They just disqualified themselves from leadership. Even if they were on the right side of the cause, they got distracted. They gave the enemy cause. They gave him an opportunity. So these 16 requirements, when properly applied, will result in the strongest possible leaders in the church. Remember, though, these requirements are standards of godliness for all of us. So you want your leaders to model the highest possible standard, but then that just sets the bar for all believers under their charge to imitate that same level of godliness. So don't assume that only overseers strive for these things. We're all supposed to have these qualities. All right, so keep that in mind as well as we go to the second list. Now, the second list goes a lot faster. There's some similarities. We're looking now at the position of deacon. This is the list that's actually more likely to apply to you than the first one, because this is a position we could all aspire to. Verse 8, deacons... Likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful, faithful in all things. 
Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So last week I said that the position of deacon is a title of service in the body of Christ. It's not a title of authority. A deacon is someone who leads by example in serving the body. And in that sense, they occupy a leadership position. You can call it leadership, but they don't exercise authority over people, over the body of Christ. Now, in many churches today, the office of deacon is either misapplied or it's absent altogether. In some cases, you'll find churches in which deacons are assigned the authority over the whole body, which is not in keeping with Paul's instructions. If you do find such a church where you have deacons as the authority over the body, they shouldn't be called deacons. They should be called overseers or perhaps elders because that's effectively what they are. If you did that, then true deacons could emerge under them to do the role of deacon. But by confusing the two, you actually eliminate one of them. Now, in most churches, that's not the problem. In most churches, the problem is there's no deacons. They may not be there in title. They might be there in function. We sometimes use titles like director or committee chairman or something like that as a way of indicating a responsibility for a work of service. Those are effectively deacons, depending on how their role is constructed. Their service roles, the person has responsibility to oversee the work of the church in some capacity. So here's your shorthand for distinguishing overseer from deacon. Overseers oversee people. Deacons oversee work. So Paul gives requirements for deacons, and you notice they're both men and women. He gives eight qualifications for the men, four for the women, although I would argue that many of the ones he applies to men were intended to be for both. The two groups of qualifications hit on similar themes, and they're going to be very similar to what you just saw with what we did in overseers, and obviously anything that's the same, I'm not going to spend time on repeating it all. We'll just acknowledge it's the same as before. All right, so Paul begins with the men. He says they have to be men of dignity. Dignity refers to carrying oneself in a holy, serious, or reverent way within the church. So as we said about overseers, a deacon is not a silly man. It's a man who's worthy of respect. He can be fun-loving, can have a great sense of humor, but he's not frivolous. He's not silly. Secondly, they're not double-tongued. The word in Greek could be translated insincere. We don't want men who have been called to lead a work of the church, some kind of project, some kind of area of ministry, who are untrustworthy. You can't trust what they say. You're not sure if they're telling you the truth. They're going to be entrusted with resources. They're going to be entrusted with people who are volunteering to work or assigned to them. And you want that person to be someone, when they say something, you know it's going to be done. You know they're telling you the truth. They don't just make things up. How can you trust someone to work when you can't trust what they say? Now, the next two requirements are similar to the two requirements that were spoken of about overseers. Not addicted to wine or not in addiction, period, nor seeking for wealth in inappropriate ways. Again, I'm not going to explain those further, except to note that even those who aren't in leadership over others are still supposed to guard against these things, right? The next two requirements are a test of maturity. Paul says a deacon must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This requirement is a lesser form of able to teach. So able to teach was the expectation for an overseer. But these guys, they're not going to be expected to teach, but a deacon's expected to hold a belief in what is being taught by the overseers. You don't want your deacons to be people who don't really understand what the truth is, or even worse, are in some way objecting to what the church's official policy is on this, that, or the other. Another way to say this, they need to be company men. They're expected to operate in harmony with their convictions concerning the doctrines of the faith. 
For example, we wouldn't elevate someone to deacon if they don't understand the core beliefs of Christianity or if they have doubts about any of the basic teachings of the faith. They need more time to get there. Furthermore, Paul says they must be tested or approved to make sure they are beyond reproach. This, again, is a complement to what you see with the overseers. The overseer, his past history of his life, it's on the table. It's open to examination before they become an overseer. With a deacon, the test is... Is the deacon now blameless? Is the deacon now above reproach? We're not so much concerned with the history of the deacon, we're concerned with their present state. Because here again, history would tell you your propensity in leadership to lead others astray. But for a work of service, we're only concerned with whether you can carry out that service well today, and that's based on where you are today for the most part. So the standard is a lesser standard than that of an overseer, but it still asks for the person who's leading us in service to be a reputable person today. I wouldn't take a drunk today and make him a deacon. I wouldn't take someone who's engaged in a divorce proceeding right now and ask them to be a deacon. These things impede their ability to be a model in service. All right, now we move on to qualifications for women deacons, female deacons, and as you would now obviously expect me to say, deacons can be men or women because a position is not a position of authority. Not only does Paul list their qualifications here, which obviously means they can do the job, but he mentions a deaconess in the church in Romans 16, chapter 16, verse 1. So there was an example in the scriptures of a woman serving in that role in the church. All right, moving to the qualifications for women deacons, Paul expects them to meet all the same basic character qualifications as men, but he lists a few individually. Verse 11, they have to be dignified as men are. But then he adds, they must not be malicious gossips. And the phrase in Greek, malicious gossip, it means to share inappropriate details about someone else in the church with intent to do them harm. Spilling a secret that you know will embarrass them or cause them to have some other damage. I did find it kind of curious that Paul lists malicious gossiping, not just gossiping in general. It's almost as if he thought that if he just said gossiping, he would disqualify all the women. Guys, you should bring some friends next week. We'll have room. That may not be the answer for why, but it is interesting, isn't it, that he didn't say gossips. He just said malicious gossips. All gossiping is wrong, but here's why I think he says that. The ones Paul seemed to be most concerned about are those who are engaged in a behavior with a heart to hurt people, with a desire to do the wrong thing. Because we can all gossip without intending to hurt someone. We may not even realize we're doing it. It's one of those things where we're just sharing something we think is interesting, and it's only later that we realize... I wonder if I should have mentioned that. That's not going to disqualify you. That's everyone at some point. It's a woman who's so spiritually immature that she would go out of her way to purposely hurt someone else in the church just because it makes them feel better. This is someone who's clearly not in a position to serve others. Uh, By the way, remember this letter was written in large part because of Paul's concerns about false teaching in this church and the way it had come, in some cases, through the women of the church who were being influenced by false teachers. So it could be, if we want to read between the lines here a little, it could be that Paul's singling out this trait because it may have been instrumental in the way false teaching was propagating within the church. Lastly, he said a female deacon is to exhibit a temperate, faithful disposition. We already talked about temperance. We'll leave it at that. Here, the word in Greek for faithful means literally stable and reliable. So when you put those two words together, temperate and stable, it suggests a woman who isn't flighty, she's not shrill, she's calm, she's measured, she's quiet. It's the direct comparison to the grandfatherly type I mentioned earlier, right? It's the same idea. We're looking for women who can counter the negative influences of those other women in the church who were apparently under the influence of the false teachers. Steady, calm, Influences within the church. 
it would seem as though Paul is asking Timothy implicitly to go find the women who qualify and get them into leadership and move them up into these deacon roles because we want them to be a balance to these others that are causing trouble. And then Paul finally, he returns to the men with a couple more requirements. He asks that the deacons be husbands of one wife and good managers of their homes. Once again, these qualifications mirror those of the overseers for all the same reasons. It's interesting to wonder why women deacons don't get this requirement. And the answer is, women in that day and in that culture had little if no responsibility in these areas. That women had no legal standing in areas of marriage, so they literally could not initiate a marriage, much less a divorce. Men had complete control over both sides of that process. So if a woman was to practice a godly marriage, if you found a woman who was practicing godly marriage, it would only be because her husband had ensured it for her sake. So it was not a requirement he put on the woman, he put it on the man. Likewise, the father had authority in the household. So if the children were unruly, it was the father's shame, not the mother's. I I still prefer that view myself, by the way. For even if the mother is not doing what she could, it's still on the father to figure out what can change and help the mother make the change. Paul ends this section with a statement that forms a bookend with verse 1. This is how we'll finish. In verse 1, remember, he said a man who aspires to be an overseer was seeking a good work. When we looked at that, we said a good work was the work of pursuing the godliness that you needed to have in order to qualify. That's the good work. So by the pursuit of those things that qualify you to be an overseer, you were then pursuing good work in your own life as part of trying to hold the position. Now, in verse 13, Paul says, those who have served as deacons will gain a high standing and a great confidence. Those words obscure, I think, unfortunately, the Greek here a little bit. High standing could also be translated high rank. And great confidence could be phrased more boldness, greater boldness. So for an overseer, the position itself is the recognition of having obtained that superior testimony of godliness. You have the testimony, and then it culminates in receiving the title of overseer. In some churches, you'll hear it said that once an elder, always an elder, even when you're not serving as one. What that phrase means is, you've already achieved that degree of godliness. No one takes that away from you. So by calling you an elder, we're just acknowledging that you are of that level of godliness. And that's the idea. The idea is we want to take the best among us and just recognize them. That's an elder in our church. He's already met that qualification by who he is. It's the culmination of a work at the end of a life. A deacon, his or her years of service result in the honor. So they get the name deacon, and then, after doing the job in the name for a period of time, then the honor is at the end. See the difference? And that honor comes in two parts, Paul says. First, high rank in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. At the very least, high rank would mean accolades among those in the church, right? We would acknowledge the great work of this deacon. But I don't think that's the extent of it. I think Paul's choice of words here would seem to be a reference to the eternal rewards that come to those who serve Christ well. So the rank then could refer to the deacon's place in the kingdom, for example. So he's saying to a deacon who executes their role well over the lifetime that they've given to serve, they'll see that result in high rank. And then secondly, those who serve well will gain greater boldness or confidence in the faith that they enjoy in Jesus Christ. And so while someone who starts as a deacon may may begin with only modest confidence in their faith or in the doctrines of the faith or their assurances in Christ, etc., After years of faithful service, that same person will have found their confidence in those things will have grown tremendously. And their boldness in their belief 
and their boldness to share it, for that matter, will have increased. They'll have a greater certainty in their faithfulness of Christ and in the promise of things to come. And you might ask, well, how is that true? How does that happen? This is the best kept secret in the church. Shouldn't be a secret, but it's the best kept one for some reason. Basic truth of Scripture. Serving God is the surest way to strengthen your faith. Because as you serve God, you inevitably confront difficulties and challenges as you try to go through that process. God allows them. He'll bring them as a strengthening opportunity for you. And what will happen, in my experience, is you'll come to moments when you need God to close the gap, to solve the problem, to deal with the need, to do something you don't have the power to do in the service that you've set out to perform. And he shows up. And as he shows up over and over again in ways he chooses, obviously, it strengthens your confidence not only in the faith that you proclaim, that it's confirming what I know in my head, but I'm seeing it. It's tangible. And that's a great boost in confidence and boldness. And then secondly, you'll see him willing to work with you in miraculous ways, big, small, whatever he may show you. And that gives you greater confidence to keep going because you understand that it's in his power anyway. I can't lose. I just follow him. And all of that is to your benefit. It's like a child who works closely with his or her father in chores around the house or in the family business. Working side by side with a parent is the best way to get to know them and to get to trust their instincts and their judgment and learn from them. And it's the same way with Christ. Serving the Lord is the best way you'll get to know the Master. And now it doesn't replace knowing Him by His Word, but it's a catalyst for sanctification. Which is why I'm always a big proponent for the church doing all its own labor instead of going and finding contractors to paint the building and fix the plumbing and do all these other things that you have people in the building who probably know how to do it. You should be asking the church to mow its own lawn and paint its own building and do all the work. And unfortunately, the bigger the church gets, the less of that we do. And so the more sanctification is being outsourced instead of letting the people in the church actually do the work of the body of Christ and gain the spiritual benefits that come from it. And if it means having a slightly less professional church or a slightly less pretty building, that's a great thing if it means you've got a much more spiritually enriched crowd inside it. So sometimes we paint the outside and we leave the inside unaddressed. So those who serve as deacons get their reward in sanctification, leading to an eternal reward. And that's a position any of us can aspire to. Even if the church doesn't name us deacons, you can assign yourself the opportunities of serving with these qualifications as a goal in themselves and then see the rewards that come from it. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for all all the ways in which you have gifted the church through the years in men of service and women of service and in men of leadership and teaching. Father, I pray that in all our individual lives as we each attend churches wherever we go, that you'd be faithful to give us men who lead well and give us men and women who serve us and give us an opportunity to join them in service, Father, so that we may gain the benefits that come from working side by side with you. And, um, Father, as we try to serve in those ways, however you call us, uh, convict us concerning those parts of our nature or character that aren't where they need to be in order to truly serve in the right heart. Help us uh, put those sins aside, Father, and uh, measure up to the standards you provided. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.